joker's heavy. Let's pray. God, this morning, first we want, before we lift up some specific requests about how we spend the next few minutes, we want to pray for another church in our community. Uh, I want to pray for Park Street Baptist Church, for Johnny Hales and his family, and pray also for Adam, who's been terribly sick. Lord, I want to just lift up this church, um, Park Street, uh, not knowing any inside details of what life is like there, being part of that church family. Lord, we share the same baptism, the same Holy Spirit. Um, We share the same Savior. We believe together with Park Street that our God is triune and um, good and loving and gracious, that we have access only by Christ's blood, and that's reason enough to cheer for your fame and your glory and your, your renown through Park Street Baptist Church, or whether it's a geographic connection on the north side of town, or whether it's just um, maybe through years of being here that families are connected to the church, Lord, we pray that they'll be connected in real meaningful ways to each other and to you. Lord, we pray that they'll be known and knowing each other. Uh, Lord, we pray that they'll be committed to each other, walking with each other in meaningful ways that will bring you glory. Lord, we pray, too, that whatever way we may serve alongside Park Street, whether it's just to lift them up this morning or whether there's some um, connections that we may have over the course of the week, we can let them know that they've been prayed for, that we want your greatness through that ministry or want your greatness to be enjoyed through that ministry. Lord, we pray that you would give us opportunity for that. Pray that you would continue to change the spirit of this community as we believe you already have away from a spirit of competition and changing it to a spirit of hopefulness and zeal for your name and your glory and your renown through Christian churches in this community. Lord, pray that you would change the heart of this community, continue to change the heart of this community where we would truly cheer for each other. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to lift up another church this morning. Pray too for Adam for his continued healing from being terribly sick. Pray that you would help them figure out what's going on with his sickness and uh, help, uh, help him heal. And should you use doctors for uh, recovery or for healing, um, that you'll continue to get the glory even through that method. Lord, speaking of that this morning, it just feels very appropriate for us to thank you. Uh, as so many Sundays, we've lifted up uh, one of our sisters, Christian Hass, to thank you for the joy of seeing her walk in this building this morning. I was looking for a wheelchair, and I'm just marveling at how quickly you were bringing healing to her body. Just so thankful for that. So thankful for the ministry to this family. We continue to lift up Robert, and um, thankful for Danielle, thankful for our sisters, and our our hopeful soon-to-be, if you will it, our brother Robert. Lord, in these next few minutes, we pray that you would be glorified in how we spend it. I pray that we would be faithful to your word. Uh, You have taken us through a substantial um, passage, uh, a thick and weighty chapter's worth of truth on Christ as high priest. And it has been lofty, 
and it's been good, and it's been deep. It's been relevant, surprisingly. It's been equipping. Lord, we pray that you would continue to do that this morning. I uh, offer up myself, I offer up this people this morning in response to our perfect offering that we've found and enjoy in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to welcome you here. If you're here for the first time, or first of a few times, I hope that you'll be greeted this morning, that maybe somebody that... Uh, encouraging our church family. If you see somebody you don't recognize, then make a point to, to say hi to them this morning. Sometimes we can get so caught up with each other, seeing each other. We haven't seen each other in a few days, and I feel like we are a pretty close church that can sometimes seem or feel hard to penetrate, and that's we never want to be that way. So I hope if you're here this morning as a, a visitor or first, you know, visiting for the first few times, you feel welcome. I'll let you know, too, what's in store. For those of you who've been part of the church for some time, you know that uh, pretty much every Sunday morning is a mixture of exposition and exhortation. Exposition is made up of two things, observation and interpretation. One of the, one of the greatest mistakes you can make in studying your Bible is to open it, read a passage of Scripture, and say, well, what does this mean to me? You're making a beeline to something that really is step three of a process or step two of a process, depending on how you're look at it, looking at it. You're, you're moving to application and exhortation when what you really need to do first is understanding what is the passage saying? What is God saying through the passage? Who's he writing it to? What's the point to them before you figure out what's the point for you? And we do that every single week. It's funny, I, we had a visitor here a few Sundays ago. He's not here this morning, so I'm not telling anybody. I don't see him anyway. He, uh, I saw him at the soccer field a few days later, and I introduced myself because I didn't get to meet him that morning. And he was here on the hour-and-a-half-long sermon. <laughs> Those of you here that are, that are visiting today who weren't here on that, that sermon, you're like, okay, that, that, I, I don't want to come back if that's what's in store. It just happened, and none of us really realized what happened. So. But he was here on that morning, and I saw him. I said, man, you were there on a doozy. And he said, you know, I... He said, it was, it was good. He said, it was, I was okay. You know, I, I wasn't ready for teaching. I was ready for preaching. I'm accustomed to preaching, but I wasn't ready for teaching. And I just kind of listened and smiled, you know, and he, I didn't want to be nice to a visitor. didn't want to explain to him that uh, proper preaching involves teaching. You have to expose something to apply something. And observation and interpretation is how you expose, and then application is how you then go respond so we're going to do that there this morning because the Hebrews preacher does it throughout the book. And we've been over the last few months in a large section of Scripture that has been focused on exposition. So the cool thing is, as we've gone, we've had some sort of mini applications. We're going to have some today. But what's in store Sunday after next and the Sunday after that, that'll be Easter Sunday and the Sunday after that, is the Hebrews preacher or the Hebrews preacher's application of a massive section of exposition. His exhortation in response to chapter 5, virtually, through chapter 10 worth of exposition. All right, I don't know if anybody got that. I, it's all sorted up here. So if you like, hey, I need, to, I need some understanding there, I'll try and do a better job of explaining that in person. But that's going to be my, my only attempt at the, explaining that this morning. Exposition and exhortation, we're going to have both of those this morning. We're going to expose chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, and we're going to look at some application 
at the end of the morning. We're going to expose verses 1 through 18 in four sections. And we're not going to spend large amounts of time on any one section. We're going to faithfully expose it and get to the essence of it. And then we're going to walk away with some things that we can apply and some exhortation. So uh, some of the things that we've gathered so far in chapters 5 through 10, this is this big massive section of exposition has to do with Christ as high priest, as a better high priest, better than any high priest that could have been or would have been around at this time. Some things that we found is that we have a better high priest, we have a better ministry in Christ. He's from a better order, from the order of Melchizedek. We find in him better blood that's efficacious. You may remember that word from last week. We find in him a better sacrifice. We find a better entrance because it's an entrance into a true tent, and it's a final one. So we find a better tent as well. We find a better covenant. In Christ, we receive a better conscience. We'll talk about that a little more this morning. And a better sacrifice. Some really good stuff have come out of this section. I found a quote by John Calvin in regards to the book of of Hebrews, and this is what he said. There is indeed no book in Holy Scripture which speaks so clearly of the priesthood of Christ, which so highly exalts the virtue and dignity of that only true sacrifice which he offered by his death, which so abundantly deals with the use of ceremonies as well as their abrogation, And in a word, so fully explains that Christ is the end of the law. Let's climb into our passage beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. The first of four sections that we'll look at. If you want to kind of make some notes and have an overview of where we're going, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4, and then verses 5 through 10, and then verses 11 through 14, and then we'll briefly... Close with verses 15 through 18. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This first section, in some ways, is dealing with the shortcomings of the law. You may remember the context, if you've been here for some period of time, the context of the book. This letter is really a sermon written from the Hebrews pastor to the Hebrews church who's considering going back to Judaism not the pastor, the church. He's away from them geographically for some reason, and he's writing to them, appealing to them, don't go back to Judaism. Don't bail on Christianity just because it's hard, because in essence, you'd be trading trading your birthright for a bowl of soup. So he is exposing a contrast between the law, what he's using in some way synonymously, although they're not synonymous, is the Mosaic Covenant the law and the sacrificial system he's using sort of interchangeably throughout this passage in contrast. And here he says in verse 1, these things cannot make the worshiper perfect. In fact, purification when it's spoken of us. When it's spoken of Christ, it has a little different meaning because he didn't need cleansing or purification. In his case, it speaks of wholeness or completeness or fitness 
as a sacrifice. But in our case, when you see throughout this book, this word that's used over and over again, perfect, when it's in regards to you and what Christ has done, it is a cleansing and a purification. I found a definition of this perfection that F.F. Bruce wrote. I enjoyed He defines perfection. Had these sacrifices actually been able to achieve perfection, this is how he would have defined it. Access to God without the constant necessity of removing the barrier of freshly accumulated sin. That's what we enjoy. That's what the Old Testament worshiper did not enjoy. Access to God without the constant necessity of removing the barrier of freshly accumulated sin. Sin. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Going back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, for some reason, just stuck with me as a passage that would nicely show the elements involved are not involved in this first few verses. The elements that are not provided through the sacrificial system what the people would ideally have through a proper sacrifice, they're all caught up in Genesis chapter 3. Let's listen to this passage. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You see some of the elements of the sacrificial system here and you see transgression You see them taking and eating of something that they were commanded not to take and eat of. And you see in some ways a little glimpse of what life must have been like, albeit short. Some people think that sin came on day one. I don't know when it came in the the creation account, but it must not have been long. But we get some glimpse of what the perfect conscience must have been like in walking with God in the cool of the day. What a delightful time it must have been before the fall where there's no fear, there's no hiding, there's no running from God, there's no effort to cover anything because you don't need to cover anything. A beautiful time it must have been 
to walk with God in the cool of the day, you see a perfect conscience. And on the other hand, you see a conscience lost. You see, what goes with conscience lost or conscience imperfected, you see weak and inadequate coverings of your own sin. Loincloths made with fig leaves. I mean, that's got to make you laugh. It's not going to last. We know what happens to leaves after they've been gathered after a bit. Weak and inadequate coverings go with conscience lost. Hiding from God, fear from God, or fear of God, that goes with a conscience lost. And something else that goes with conscience lost is blaming each other and blaming God. The woman you gave me, she's the one that gave me the fruit. Well, God, Satan, he deceived me. It's sad, the things you see here. And then you see in verse 21, look over across the the column there. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. In some ways, we see all the elements of the sacrificial system here. And we see a transgression. And now we see a covering In verse 21, this was the first sacrifice that was ever made, the first death that was ever experienced in all of creation that we know of. And it was made as a sacrifice for a temporary covering, and it provided no real remedy for Adam and Eve other than to temporarily cover their own shame and cover their own nakedness. In some ways, these pictures that we see in the garden of conscience lost... Imagining what conscience, a perfected conscience must have been like. And then seeing this first inadequate sacrifice, we get some sense of what the Mosaic covenant, the sacrificial system and the law are the shortcomings that must have been there. Even with a God-given instrument, there was no real walking in the cool of the day restoration with God. In fact, they are evicted from the garden from that point on. Access is denied. There's no return to the garden and no fellowship with God. Instead, in the sacrificial system, going back to our context, instead in the sacrificial system, you can turn all the way back over to Hebrews, there is a reminder of sins year by year. In verse 3 of this passage, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every single year. The reference there is to the Day of Atonement that takes place once a year where you have a chance to remember exactly what you did that year. It must have been an interesting day. It's a mixture of joy as sins are paid for, but then a sad day as you remember that you're going to have to see it again next year. There's going to have to be another Day Day of Atonement the next year. There's a reminder of your sin and also a reminder that you haven't really found a true remedy. You haven't truly been restored to the garden and walking with God in the cool of the day. It must have been a joyful day, but it must have been also a sad and sober day. See, redemption was not found in the sacrifices. It is illustrated in the sacrifices. That's altogether different. Redemption is not found in the sacrifices, it is illustrated in the sacrifices, and every single illustration is yet another reminder of guilt, year by year by year. 
And the remembrance here doesn't mean just a recollection of sin, like, oh yeah, I sinned. But remembrance here has to do with taking action as well. And that action year by year is another fresh sacrifice because it wouldn't go the distance and wouldn't last. Psalm 51, turn there if you would, please. Psalm 51 is a familiar psalm to many of you. The title in my Bible is Created Me a Clean Heart, O God. Context-wise, this is the psalm that David wrote at some point after he's confronted by Nathan after sin, significant sin with Bathsheba and murder of her husband. Within this psalm, we get some little glimpse of the insufficiencies and inadequacies of the sacrificial system. Listen to this passage in chapter 10, or in chapter 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Look down at verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In this passage, in this heartbreaking psalm, we get to see some glimpses of the shortcomings of the law and the shortcomings of the sacrifices for a guy who desperately needs a clean heart. This isn't the only psalm that gives us glimpses of this. In fact, if you were to draw out and glean a theme of most of the psalms, you would hear the phrase, How long, O Lord? Over and over again through the psalms. You hear it in Isaiah. You hear it in Jeremiah. You hear it in the minor prophets. How long, O Lord, till you give us a proper covering for our sin? Because these loincloths and these skins of animals... And this blood and this weekly, daily, yearly sacrifice is not truly getting it done. William Barclay put it this way. William Barclay was a Scottish minister and theologian. He said, a man is ill. A bottle of medicine is prescribed for him. If that medicine affects a cure, every time he looks at the bottle thereafter, he will say, I want to say it with a Scottish accent, but I'm afraid to attempt it. Luke could do it. That is what gave me back my health. On the other hand, if the medicine is ineffective, every time he looks at the bottle, he will be reminded that he is ill and that he and that the recommended cure was useless. And I put in my own little notes after that and that he desperately needs something else every time he looks at that bottle. That was the purpose of the sacrificial system, to sort of create a 1,500-year itch where the people of God are collectively saying and crying out and calling out, How long, O Lord, created me a clean heart? If I could do it with a sacrifice, I would give it. But I need something else. The sacrifices best understood pointed not to themselves but away from themselves. Not emphasizing what they accomplished, but rather emphasizing what they couldn't accomplish. Let's continue on in Hebrews. You'll just need to keep your finger in Hebrews for the rest of the morning because we're going to be going back and forth to it. In our next section, beginning in verse 5. 
Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order in order, or the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And there's some tragic shortcomings in the law and the sacrificial system and the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. But consequently, when Christ came into the world, he brought something altogether different. The passage that's quoted here comes from Psalm chapter 40. We're going to look at, or Psalm number 40, we're going to look at Psalm 40 at the end of the morning at the Lord's Supper. But for now, just know that these passages are drawn in the Septuagint version, that version that's, that will be important at the end of the morning. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Hebrew Old Testament. And there are some clues here and various clues that give us a sense that the, this church was not in Jerusalem. That's one clue. If they're in Jerusalem, they're not going to be quoting a Greek Old Testament. They're going to be quoting a Hebrew version. The, the Septuagint stuff will come back later in the morning. But he's quoting Psalm chapter 40, verses, or Psalm number 40, verses 6 through 8. And a few of the things that he brings out there first is that Christ is saying the words of Psalm 40. Now, David wrote that psalm, but David was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And here our Hebrews preacher is telling us when Christ came into the world, he said, I'm doing this. And he said, sacrifices and offerings you've desired. And in verse 6, and in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure, but a body have you prepared for me. First of all, sacrifices and offerings, Christ emphasizes, you've desired and they haven't got the job done. Man, some sad truths to consider there. Some of the things that we heard from David created me a clean heart. Man, if it was just a matter of a sacrifice, I would give it. And Christ here says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. A couple of passages that I'll share with you, and you can jot these down, or if you can turn quickly, you can turn there. Keep your finger over there in Hebrews 10, though. It's 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. When Saul offered a sacrifice that was improperly offered, one that he should not have offered, Samuel approached Saul and said these words, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Very appropriate that he's saying those words to Saul, who wasn't being obedient. And wasn't listening. It's not just more blood. It's not the fat of rams. It's not these sacrifices that God is after. But he's after obedience. This is going to give us a clue to what Jesus is saying in Psalm 40. Listen to this passage from Micah chapter 6. 
With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Man, these passages give us sad reminders that the sacrificial system could not get it done. It's like the altar. If you want to just for a moment sort of give the altar a personality and sort of make it sort of almost kind of like a little human. Now it's not. The altar is hungry for something other than blood. It's hunger, hungry for obedience. Saul didn't give it. He gave some blood and the fat of rams, but he didn't give, didn't give obedience. David knew that the altar required something more than what he could give in order to give him a clean heart. And Micah there in Micah chapter 6 testifies that, man, thousands of rams will not satisfy this God. This altar has pined for something else. It's pined for obedience. And the beautiful thing is from this Psalm number Psalm 40 passage that the Hebrews preacher exposes, he explains that Christ is saying, a body have you prepared for me. There's a beautiful connection there to the incarnation. You haven't been satisfied with the sacrifices of blood and bulls and goats, but you've prepared a body for me, and I'll be that sacrifice. I'll be that thing that the altar is pined for. I'll be the thing that will finally satisfy you. One of the things I enjoy from this passage that is sort of lost in sort of a weird word is the word behold. We don't say that word with each other very often. I don't know that we ever say that. You'd be sort of weird if you did. Behold. Hey, what do you want? But that's what behold means. Look over here. Look over here. It's like in this passage when Jesus says this passage, as the Hebrews preacher says, when he came into the world and said, behold, in some ways he's saying, look over here, Father, here I am, here's a body prepared, I'll satisfy that thing that a million bulls and goats never could. Look over here, I've come to do your will. Here's the obedience the altar has been pining for. This is what God has desired for 1,500 years, an obedient, willing sacrifice that only Christ could be and provide. Man, it's a beautiful psalm in context. And unlike the dumb animals and birds, this sacrifice is altogether willing and altogether aware of exactly what he's doing. There's a quote from F.F. F. Bruce about this sacrifice. He says, This was a rational and voluntary sacrifice, an intelligent and loving response to the holy and gracious will of God and to the terrible situation of man. This response and nothing else could satisfy both the divine will and the human predicament. Man. Thousands of rams couldn't do what this one sacrifice did. This adds new meaning, this Christ taking this Psalm 40 and fulfilling it, this prophetic passage that David, who knows if he even really had a concept of what he's saying as he's writing it. Jesus says, I'm that body prepared. 
I'm the thing that's going to satisfy our God, finally. It adds new meaning. Listen to this passage in Mark 14. When Christ was arrested, it says, Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. That adds new meaning. It's like saying, let Psalm 40 be fulfilled. Look, here I am, a body prepared. I'll go to the altar obediently, finally satisfying what thousands and thousands and thousands of bulls and goats never could. And ultimately, what's achieved in there, turn back to Hebrews, what's achieved in that sacrifice, what's achieved in that work is in verse 10. And by that will, that will of Christ as high priest and the final perfect sacrifice, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That word sanctified means to be made holy. It's connected to other words that are used throughout these chapters. Perfected, cleansed. In some ways it means to be made suitable to draw near to a holy God. One of the things that's hard to bring out in the English language are tenses that aren't in the English language. The Greek has a tense that's called the perfect tense. Our tenses, and there are some others, but the primary tenses are past, present, and future. In the Greek, there's a, something called a perfect tense. And a perfect tense is something that happens at a past point in time, but has reverberating impact. Be like striking a bell that rings for all of eternity. And that word sanctified here is in the perfect tense. It happened at a point in time when Christ went to the cross. And that bell rings even today as we sing, as we worship, as we fellowship, as we stay awake, as we gather together. (laughs) Man, that bell's ringing. That bell's ringing as we're walking in this sanctification that was accomplished then. There's no need for re-sanctification the next time you sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, shows us how important holiness is in this sanctification. For it says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So this thing that Christ accomplished through his sacrifice that a million bulls and goats never could achieves for us, the worshiper, what nothing else could. Let's continue in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his, sac- at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, a body prepared, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In case you haven't been paying attention for the last couple of months, (laughs) the daily, yearly service of the priests and high priests, the regularly, the repeatedly offered sacrifices, which can never take away sins, are illustrated with a standing priest. You need to know, if you go back and read all the fixtures and all the furniture that's in the tabernacle and in the temple, you can look all in there, and one thing you're not going to see is you're not going to see a chair. You see all kind of cool furniture with filigree and all kind of cool things, engravings, but you're not going to see any chairs. 
because the priest never sat down. His job, I mean, maybe at home, <laughs> but he didn't sit down in that tabernacle. You better not sit down before God because you're always at work, atoning for the last one, preparing for the next one. Christ, on the other hand, sat down once and forevermore. His work completely and absolutely finished. No more sacrificing to be done. No more offering to be done. No more sprinkling to be done. Only interceding. That's the only work he does, and he can do that seated, apparently. It says he lives to intercede for you and me. And apparently he can do that seated because he's squarely seated forevermore. And he's perfected those who are being sanctified in verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What the law couldn't do, remember back in verse 1, it can never make perfect those who want to draw near. Christ did. He's made us perfect forevermore. Again, the Greek tenses sort of unlock the beauty here. In verse 12, there are two things that, are, that Christ does. He offered and he sat down. Both of them are past tense. In the Greek, it's called aorist tense. It means it happens at a point in time and it's contained. Boom, he sat down. Bam, blam. Every, if I, if I, like sock, let's make a bunch of comic strips words. We'll just put there with it where we see him seated, plopping down forevermore. Done deal. He offered and he sat down. And then here in verse 14, he has perfected. There's the perfect tense again. The word is perfected and it's in the perfect tense, meaning that it happened at a point in time, but the bell's still ringing. Your sanctification happened at a point in time and the bell's still ringing. Your perfection happened at a point in time, but the bell's still ringing as we sit here right now, enjoying that he has sanctified us and he has perfected us. Now, the complication here, it's a great example for the engineer types in here that like stuff in nice, tidy little boxes. Earlier in verse 10, we pointed out that sanctification has, is a done deal. He sanctified us forevermore. But then here in this verse, it says those who are being sanctified, which is present tense. It's a great example of the already and not yet, that we are reckoned sanctified, yet we are being sanctified. It's a great example of some nuance and some complex thought that mature Bible readers need to have. The already and not yet. Now let's read our last little section here, beginning in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And in verse 18, closes out a massive section of exposition. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. I enjoy that he closes out these chapters worth of exposition with a reminder of the new covenant. He doesn't share all three details that we gathered in, ver or in chapter 8. But he shares two of them contextually because he's making the point about the sacrifice specifically. But I enjoy that he captures, up, ca captures at least two of them and reminds us of the beauty of the new covenant where we receive a new heart, the thing that David pined for. Cleanse my heart. Do something to my conscience that I can't do, that no bulls or goats could do. We have in the new covenant, in Christ's sacrifice, 
And secondly, we have access to the Father from the least to the greatest. We don't have to wait on the high priest. We don't even have to wait on the, the, the year of atonement or the day of atonement. We can do it right now from the least of you to the greatest. And the third, forgiveness of sins. There's no more offerings to be made. There's no longer any offering for sin. In studying some of these passages, I think through other um, practices that may be common in the Christian church. And I'm very careful about considering other denominations our brother, our brothers and sisters. And I hope you hear that. We pray for other denominations as well on Sunday mornings. Something I want to say, though, the Catholics believe that every week when they take the Mass, they believe that the, the offering is made yet again in the Eucharist. And this, this is, I mean, this is true. You can research this if you'd like. You need to know that we as Protestants believe that that offering has been made once and finally and forevermore. We believe what this passage says, that there no longer remains an offering for sin. We believe what it says. When Christ sat down... The offering was done, period. So it seemed like maybe a semantics thing. It's not semantics. If in worship, week by week, you gather and you think you are re-offering Christ some way, no sir and no ma'am. The offering's been made once and forevermore. Now, here's the summary for five chapters in a paragraph. Listen to this. The summary of this massive section of exposition and nearly three months worth of preaching. There's impossibility of pardon through the shadows of the law and the sacrificial system. Yet there's assurance of pardon through Jesus Christ. There's impossibility of perfection through the sacrifices, 1,500 years worth. And yet we find absolute perfection through the sacrifice that is Christ. There's impossibility of cleansing through the ministry of the priests And yet the ministry of the perfect high priest truly cleanses deep down to the conscience, deep down to the heart. And there were many a priest who stood day by day regularly doing their work. And then there's our high priest who sat down, his work completed. Man. It's been a sweet time of exposing the truth about Christ as high priest. There's some things that I think we can apply this morning as we anticipate what the Hebrews preacher will apply, how he will exhort the Hebrews church that will have connections for us on Easter Sunday and the Sunday after. But there are some applications that we can make right now that we would be negligent if we didn't. I'll offer three of them and then a couple of miscellaneous ones. Three clear ones. And then some miscellanies. First, clear one. When sacrifice ceases, consciousness of sin ceases. I want you to look at these verses. Verse 18 and verse 2 again. Just pay real close attention to what's being said here. In verse 2, I'll read first. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. And then look at verse 18. See if I can find that in my notes here. There it is. There's no longer any offering for sin. The beauty of what we have in Christ is that the sacrifice 
has ceased, so the consciousness of sin then ceases. I want you to consider the old covenant and the contrast there where the, there is a constant reminder of sins year by year. And then in this covenant, in chapter 8, verse 12, we're reminded that God says, I will remember their sins no more. So if God says, I will remember your sins no more, should you be sitting around remembering your sins all day, every day? If God says, I'm not going to remember their sins anymore, is it your job, and are we going to call that pious worship, to sit around and remember your sins all day? Apparently, when the sacrifice ended, when the sacrifices ceased, the consciousness of sin ceases. Man, I want to clarify something. There is a big difference between a lowly and humble contrition confessing your sins to others and to God. That's very appropriate, even for new covenant worshipers. But let me tell you something. A morbid dwelling on sins already committed, already confessed, already forgiven is not Christian and not God-honoring at all. In effect, what it's saying is that sacrifice wasn't good enough. I need something more. This sin is just too bad. It's just too grave. So I think I'll camp out on it. And that has to do not, with, not only with your own sin, but maybe the sin of somebody who's transgressed against you that you've been unable to forgive. Huh. When God says, I will remember their sins no more, are you sitting around morbidly remembering those sins? Those things that you've done? I said last week, we developed this last week, that through Christ's work, God is okay with you. I think that, man, that's been a message from this pulpit for a long time. But this may be a new thought. Through Christ's work, you can be okay with you. Through Christ's work, you can be okay with you. You can still sing songs like Wretched Worm That I Am. I mean, that's, you can still listen to the He Stinketh series. But you don't live in this place of being morbidly stuck on your sin. And I want you to understand, when I say that God is okay with you because of what Christ has done, you need to be okay with you because of what Christ has done. This is not some sort of um, Joel Osteen, I'm okay, you're okay thing. For any of you that are really tight with Joel, I don't mean offense, but that would probably be offensive, but... It's just, it's a substanceless message. I'm okay, you're okay. That's not what this is. What this is for the new covenant worshiper, we know that our inner conscience is cleansed and the inner judge and jury is satisfied because we know on our best day and on our worst day, we wear an alien righteousness. That's why our consciousness that's why our conscience is cleansed. On our best day and on our worst day, we wear an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs solely to our high priest, Jesus Christ. He earned it. It was his obedience. He's the one that said, hey, look over here. Behold, here I am, a body prepared. I'll do what those sacrifices couldn't do. Man, that's the thing that gives us a perfected, cleansed conscience. We don't ride the roller coaster of, I'm good today, I'm bad. Oh, I'm good today, I'm bad. It's a righteousness that belongs solely to our high priest. 
the perfect priest with the perfect sacrifice perfectly and finally offered. That gives you sort of a steadiness to your view of yourself. Do you still deal with sin? Should you be convicted over sin? Absolutely. Do you still seek to put sin to death? Absolutely. But do you live in this morbid slavery to sin and the effects of it? Absolutely not. His work was that final and that effective and that great. John Bunyan wrote these words. Sinner, thou thinkest that because of thy sins and infirmities I cannot save thy soul? Behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, not on thee, and will deal with thee according as I am pleased with him. Man, that's got to be some seriously good news for you. That's got to be some seriously good news for you. I will deal with thee according as I am pleased with him. Man, that's the beauty of a perfected, cleansed conscience. The consciousness of sin ceases. Secondly, as he is seated, so are you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As he is seated, so are you. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of, to me, one of the most beautiful and concise handlings of the gospel in our Bibles in just a few verses. Beginning in chapter 2, listen to this and look for posture. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, you once, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were in a hopeless situation. The blood of bulls and goats and calves couldn't get it done. Now he's speaking to Gentiles. But not exclusively to Gentiles, because he said, we too were by nature children of wrath. On our best day, we needed something other than the blood of bulls and goats. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The second thing that I think is a very appropriate application of chapters worth of Hebrews is enjoying that we are seated with Christ when it comes to sin atoning work. There's no penance when you sin. If you sin this week and you have some sort of conscious thought, I need to go spend some time sort of redeeming myself from that sin, then you've missed the point of Hebrews here. The sin atoning work has been paid for. It has been done. When Christ was seated in the heavenlies, it says according to to this passage here in in Ephesians chapter 2, that you were seated as well so we together can rest in his work. Enjoy him and his work. And here's the good news. You will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's, It's almost like the harder you work at putting sin to death, 
and you neglect enjoying Christ, the least effective you'll be. You focus on sin, these things come up in your life. You're like, man, I got to deal with that. I got to reckon with that. And the harder you go after it and you go, oh, yeah, I assume. You guys, we assume we love Jesus, right? I'm going to get to work on putting sin to death. You have put down the instrument that is actually going to change your heart and change your life. And the instrument is to enjoy a seated, reigning, and ruling, victorious Lord. Man, there's something to that. Enjoy him and his work, and the Holy Spirit will give you victory over things in his time and for his glory. Make no more offerings for your sin. That offering's already been made. The third thing, turn to Romans 12, and then I have some miscellaneous for you. Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I've already said the sacrificing is done. The sin covering, sin atoning sacrifice is done, finished forevermore. When Jesus said it's finished, it was finished. When he sat down, he sat down, and we're seated with him. And the appropriate response to all of that is then we go offer up our lives as living sacrifices. All in. All in. That's the only words that came to mind in this, thinking, man, how could you possibly read what Christ has done in Hebrews 5 through 10? How could we possibly spend months exposing what Christ has done for us in Hebrews 5 through 10 with a better high priest, a better ministry, a better order, better blood, a better sacrifice, a better entrance, better covenant, better conscience, better, sac- better uh, salvation? How could we possibly consider those things and then just put our faith on some sort of cruise control? moderating our faith. Man, Christians are called to be moderate, but not in faith. Moderation in all things, but not moderation in faith. The only appropriate response to these deep and awesome truths about Christ is an all-in faith. Pursuing Him with zeal. Pursuing Him wholeheartedly. There's no room for moderation in worship. No room at all. Now, for some miscellaneous applications of Christ as high priest. Though none of you may be considering becoming a Jew, some of you may be considering that this faith thing is a little hard. And you might consider that maybe I could find something that would be a little easier. It's a tad too demanding to know and be known. You may not be thinking that. You might be. You may not be thinking it right now, but you might be thinking it a month from now. You might be thinking these thoughts that maybe there's a form or version of this that keeps me and others at arm's length and we can just come and go like smiling ships in the night. Sunday by Sunday. In light of Hebrews chapters 5 through 10... I'm just going to say that's a bowl of soup compared to the birthright of meaningful 
relationships and meaningful connections to each other as we go the distance with God's people. That's a miscellaneous application. Here's another. Maybe there are some who consider that accountability and penetrating truth speaking is just a tad too uncomfortable. And while I still love Jesus, I don't like nor do I want to wrestle with deep truths. Man, in light of chapters 5 through 10, how could you not? It's an appropriate response to Christ as high priest to wrestle with deep and true things with each other in meaningful ways. Third, and this may be the biggest miscellaneous anyway, maybe there are some of us who are listening week by week. And maybe as we listen to these sort of deep truths, Massive truths about Christ as high priest week by week. These truths are sort of gathered and stored until we need them again next week. Like a book that you get out from the library and you open on Sunday and then you close it and you put it back on the shelf until next Sunday. Maybe there are those who are just collecting data and not connecting that data to a busy and hard week. Maybe there are those that are not connecting the realities of the new covenant to the death or the imminent death of a family member. Some of y'all are going through that kind of stuff. Could that happen where you come week by week and you hear about these massive truths of Christ as high priest and nary a moment where it connects to some of the dark, difficult things that you're going through in a difficult marriage? In a heartbreaking situation where a family member is dying? Is it possible for you to hear these things and to never connect the riches of the new covenant to the struggles of a relentless work schedule or a besetting sin? Man, these things have been the goods for me. Christy and I are coming up on 20 years of marriage. I have been one of the most difficult men in the world to be married to. And I ain't joking. As, as patient, loving as I can be with y'all, I can be so impatient with my bride. And you know what? Man, I'm going to tell you, as a result of these last few months that we've spent together, I'm seeing now a new capability in not being that jerk. I don't have to look at Romans, 9 and fi- Romans 7 and find comfort. Well, you know, it's just struggling with the flesh. I see some victory there. I'm like, oh, man. I've got a new heart. I've got an indwelling Holy Spirit. I've got the law written on my heart. I've got a capability the Old Testament, Old Covenant worshiper didn't have. I don't have to be that same jerk. I can be somebody different. I can connect these truths to my den, to my kitchen table, to how I speak to my children. And that's the goods. You've got to know week by week you can hear these things and you can sleep through yet another sermon and then the the goods nary connect. Man, week by week we are getting the goods to deal with these trials. These trials are not completely unrelated to your faith and worship. They're not supposed to be. You're being equipped for those trials. You're being nourished for those trials, in those trials. Week by week, three months of Christ as high priest was and is for you in your trial. Name trial X. Put a blank, trial blank, and 
fill in your trial. The last three weeks of Christ as high priest is for you. Man, do you know how easy, how easy it is for us to just hear this monologue week by week and drone on, drone on, and then come and go, and then we go do life. But we're, we'll be faithful, so we come back next week, not realizing we're being fed and nourished for that trial, for that week. Man, another miscellaneous application is that maybe there are some of you who ride the roller coaster of trying to please God. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it shouldn't be a roller coaster. Man, we should live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We should want to please our Heavenly Father. That's very appropriate. But some of you are enslaved to the drama of that. Some of you who are enslaved to the drama of that maybe should enjoy the truths of being sanctified once and for all. And that will set you free, free to serve, free to worship, free to enjoy Jesus and not just put sin to death. Free to put sin to death via enjoying Jesus. How about that? Maybe your conscience, on the other hand, is an inner judge and jury screaming at you daily. And the reality of a purified conscience could be and should be the sweetest comfort to you in those moments. Man, you can be set free to enjoy, set free to serve. Man, that's the scandal of what Christ has done for us. There's so much to apply here, brothers and sisters. There's so much to consider. I share with you one of my personal things of my number one ministry sitting right there and how this is transforming Ben McGraw. I hope you have some. If you don't, you've got some work to do. You've got to go back and be re-equipped. <laughs> if it came and went for you the last three months and you're like, man, i got nothing, it's online. It's online. you got work to do. You've got to carve out some time every day, and it's work. That's what big people do. Big people work. Grown folk work. If you like a little baby, a little baby bird, you need to put it in my mouth again. Man, we got the goods these last three weeks, and it's available for you. And if you have no clue of how that's connecting to anything, then go back and listen. And also ask for some help. You're not going to be able to pull off getting away with that by yourself. You're going to need to ask your small group shepherd, ask some family members, ask any of the deacons or elders. We'll come alongside you. It's not going to be, hey, here's a website. Go for it. We'll come alongside you and talk you through it again. I'm not going to preach it again, but I'll come alongside you and work through it and help you maybe figure out how this connects, how this can give you hope in a dark trial, how this can set you free if you've been in the trap of thinking you can pay for your sin somehow. Man, that's what we do. That's good shepherding. I offer myself as available for that. I offer your small group shepherds because I know the men involved. They're available for that as well. I offer Brad and Scott because I know the men involved. We'll shepherd you through it. If you're sitting here with nothing, man, you got the resources right in front of you. We started this series out, remember? Saying, we're going to deal with what the Hebrews preacher is saying. He's saying, I want to expose this deep and massive and awesome truth to you, but I can't because you're drinking milk like a bunch of little babies. But he didn't like put a period of that and just move on. He went back to the meat. 
man, that's what we've done. So I don't think the remedy is that we just start passing out milk. The remedy is we work through the meat. And we learn how to deal with it like grown folk. All right? Okay, we're going to have a Lord's Supper now. I told you sort of this weird little Septuagint comment. I was sort of planting a seed. I want you to turn to Psalm 40. I want you to see this in Psalm 40. And maybe keep your finger in Hebrews 10, like I told you for the morning, or encouraged you for the morning. Turn to Psalm 40. You know, this psalm is the psalm that Christ, the Hebrews preacher says, Christ says when he came, I'm a body prepared for you. Now, this is really cool. To me, this is just a kind of a hidden treasure of this passage. Listen to the Hebrews 10 version of this Psalm 40. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. That's the Hebrews 10 version. Now, remember, he's quoting the Septuagint. Our Old Testament is not translated from the Septuagint. That would be a translation from a translation. Our Old Testament is translated from the Hebrew. And listen to what it says in Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering, in verse 6, you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Now, if you're looking at the two of those, you're going, wait a minute, why does this say you've given me an open ear? And yet over there in Hebrews, the Hebrews preacher is quoting the same passage, but yet it's saying, you, you've prepared a body for me. Well, what's behind this passage in Psalm 40 that I just can't help but wonder if the Hebrews church wasn't aware of this connection? If they just immediately made a beeline to the incarnation or if they thought about this beautiful picture in Exodus 21. If you'd like to turn there, you can. If you don't want to, that's totally cool. Exodus 21, listen to this. Now there are the rules when you shall Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve 6 years, and in the 7th year he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if, listen to this, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now, that may be the first time you've ever heard that. It may sound sort of primitive, but I want you to see the beauty in a slave saying, You know what? I love you, master. And I love my wife and my children. So here you go. Bore a hole in my ear. I'm your slave and your servant forever. This Psalm 40 passage, the body prepared that the Septuagint translates, the Hebrew is, I have bored your, bored your ear. I can't remember what the word is exactly, but that's the background for that. I am your willing slave forevermore. 
Look over here. Behold, I'll be your servant. I'll be obedient to you, Father. I'll go to that altar. I'll be the final sacrifice. Here you go. Man, we've got to enjoy that Christ was not some dumb animal led to slaughter. He willingly offered himself up. He willingly offered his ear in eternal obedience to the Father. John 10, 18, he says, No one takes it from me, my life. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Let's distribute the elements and enjoy our supper together. Planning this uh, series of sermons, I was looking months out, a few months ago, and was jotting this down. It was a long three-month period, January, the first Sunday in January through what was uh, actually going to be the Sunday after Easter without a break from the pulpit and also without a break from Hebrews. I wondered then if we could go the distance. I wondered if, we, if I could go the distance in that. It's been some heavy lifting, not just in the preaching, but I know in the listening. I saw it this morning. I saw some fatigue in y'all I hadn't seen yet. I saw some sleepers this morning. I'm not going to call any names, but I'll, I'll send you some emails. so that I see some eyebrows raised, like somebody like, you saw me? Yeah, I saw you. I can totally see your face from up here. <laughs> it's not like, like, you know, when somebody's driving a car and they need to clean their nose and they think they're invisible? You're not invisible. I know it's been a challenging go of it. And I, I, I thought about this morning. It's kind of like, um, you know, springtime, you get out in your yard and you're going to sort of deal with some stuff that happened over the winter. You know, some plants that died or some, some flower beds that need tending to. We had a massive limb that fell during the ice storm <laughs> that we just now cut up like day before yesterday in the back back of our backyard. And, um, you know, this is the time of year where you kind of do that work. And it's hard, hard work. But if you're faithful to get... See, I want to stop when the piles are made. You know, you make piles of weeds or you pile up the limbs and you finally get it manageable. I just want to kind of stop right there. Y'all got your... <laughs> glad you got your Lord's Supper picked up. That would have been bad. And I want to sit down like, okay, yeah, man. Let's... But it's not time to sit down yet. And this morning was still a standing up sort of time. We had some, some exposition to do, but we've exposed it as a church. We've gone through a massive section of Scripture with some massive truths. And man, the beauty is when you finish the job and you pick up the piles and you, you, know, you, you sort out the, the implements, you go put them back in the shed and you, know, you cut the grass, you can sit back and enjoy all that. That's what's in store for us in these next few weeks. It's to sit back and enjoy this hard work and to look together. Look at what God did. Let's consider together what, how this will play out in our lives. He's got some beautiful exhortation that's coming. Today was just some things that we could glean immediately at this point. But, man, Sunday after next, we're going to together enjoy some sweet meals that we've earned. <laughs> we've earned them by doing the hard work of working on the yard. And we're going to sit back in the Adirondack and enjoy them together.
because we've earned it. So that's in store. Man, I'm, I'm boasting of Christ in y'all. Because it's been a very, you know, there's a mindset for me that I'm thinking, man, our church is going to shrink during this period because it's hard, heavy lifting. And, you know, we had an hour and a half sermon. In there. In, I, I don't know how long this morning was. That may have been an hour and a half today. It's hard. But, man, good thing. You can enjoy some good things on the other side of hard work. I want to encourage you all in this. We're not going to do this every single Sunday. Hebrews ends. <laughs> there are other books. And Hebrews actually changes from this point on, really, almost the rest of the book. The chapter 11 is the faith chapter. There's some cool stories we're going to look at, faith stories. We're just going to climb into those narratives and enjoy those stories and see how they were faithful. And then almost the rest of the book is exhortation because we've done the hard work of exposition. I encourage y'all, man, this has such application for you just as a worshiper. This is what grown folk do. This is what grown, and I mean spiritually mature people do. I want to encourage you in this. It's been a sweet time for us, a challenging time. And I'm thankful that we've had this reminder every single week that we are responding to a finished work. All our work, all our striving, all of that, all of our offering, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, that's all in response to a work that's already been finished. We have to remind ourselves of that every week because it helps us exhale. Oh, okay. I'm enjoying, and it's in enjoying Christ that he's transforming us, that he is changing us into the image of his son. Man, let's take and eat and drink together. Let me pray. God, we are so thankful for these last few months that we've had together enjoying Christ as high priest. Enjoying that Christ has a better ministry than any priest or high priest that ever existed. We've enjoyed together, Lord, that Christ is of a better order, an altogether different order than the order of Aaron. That he offered and spilled and sprinkled at the cross better blood. That he was and is a better sacrifice. That the entrance into the perfect tent was final once and for all. We enjoy today that we are walking in and enjoying together a beautiful covenant. One where you've done some things to us as the worshipers that the old covenant worshipers didn't have. Because of what Christ has done. We're thankful together, Lord, that we have a better conscience. We know that we are okay with you finally and that we can be okay with ourselves. And Lord, we enjoy a better salvation.